Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. When I finally heard the full story, 40 years after that first asking, I understood why she thought she could win on Survivor. For Mott, surviving was never a game. It was her reality. This program features the work of 2019 writer Putsada Rang. In the first half, you'll hear her conversation with curator Kathleen Flanagan, recorded in the Jack Straw studio. So tell me about your Jack Straw Writers project. I'm working on a piece now that is really an expansion of a single scene out of my working memoir. Uh, and the memoir is about growing up in Corvallis, Oregon. My family had escaped the war and genocide in Cambodia. And it takes a look at uh, this idea of displacement, both in a sense of our family and me being displaced as refugees, uh, being displaced from our homelands, but then there's the second displacement of me being gay. And that displacement within my own family and also kind of coming to terms with that within myself. And so the, the project that I have for Jack Straw is really a, a scene about my mom being addicted to the reality TV show Survivor. She always wanted to watch this show with us. And growing up, before I heard the story of how my family got to America, I didn't really understand why she was, of all the TV shows, she loved this show so much, until I heard the story of how our family escaped and how she truly did survive on a deserted island with little food and water. Well, we did. And what made it such an impression was that she would watch this show and she would just scoff at the, these Americans, these silly Americans parading on the beach in their swimsuits and trying to spear a fish. And she always would say, "Put sign me up for the show. I can win. That's the easiest million I can win that million dollars. And, you know, I th just laughed. I thought, you know, mom's be just being crazy. Well, after I heard the story of how we escaped Cambodia and survived, actually, I do think she can win. So the piece that I'm writing is um, takes that scene and, and really kind of blows it up and becomes this character sketch of my mother. Mm. That's wonderful. So this is pulled out of a larger memoir. Tell me a little bit about that. The memoir that I'm working on right now uh, kind of retraces my own steps backwards from a present-day dilemma and conflict I've had with my mother. The conflict is over me being gay. She raised me and my sisters particularly within a pretty conservative Cambodian culture and taught us early on that when we grew up, we would one day have husbands and, and we were to behave in particular ways, meaning we were to always have a hot meal ready for our husbands. We essentially would be belong to our husbands. In Cambodian culture, I eventually learned women really have no sense of agency whatsoever. They become, in essence... Chattel or something? Yes, yeah. They, be, they become the property of their husbands, in a sense. So there's, there's really no sense of freedom. And so I was raised with this kind of mindset also as a Cambodian daughter... Well, by the time I grew up and realized that actually perhaps there would be no husband for me, and in fact there would maybe one day be a wife, 
it created a lot of commotion and chaos within my family. And um, so my memoir travels backwards to actually a time when my mother tried to eschew her own culture. She had been educated in Cambodia, which was rare for a girl um, at the time she was growing up in the 1940s and 50s in Cambodia. But she was raised by a benevolent uncle who thought very differently. He was very progressive, and he wanted his niece to get an education. Well, because my mom was educated, it meant that she could think critically. She could see another world for herself. And so by the time when she turned 21 and her father told her she was going to be in an arranged marriage, she did something that scandalized our family. She fled. And so when I learned that story, I thought, how interesting. She herself tried to escape her own Cambodian culture. In a sense, I tried to escape mine by asserting who I am as a um, gay daughter of Cambodian refugees. We are both similar in that way. And so the book really takes a look at that complicated relationship I have with my mother because of how similar and stubborn we are, and yet the different tracks our lives ultimately took. Writing a memoir, if you know, that we can call creative writing, has that upped your game? Or have you always had this sort of beauty in your writing, but you had to maybe tamp it down a little bit for your purposes as a journalist? I really like that question so much, Kathleen, because it gives me an opportunity to talk about my early influences in writing, which actually did not have its roots in journalism, but actually, in fact, had its roots in poetry. I don't at all fancy myself a poet, but I absolutely love poetry, and I read poetry voraciously, second only to memoir. Mm. I came into writing because of an inability to speak English. I arrived in kindergarten not even knowing the ABCs. It was my kindergarten teacher back then, Mrs. Hedges, who was so patient and so nice. She sat with me when the other students had quiet reading time to help me learn the ABCs. And eventually she helped me learn how to say simple, single-syllable words like cat and run. And eventually, by the end of the year, I was belting out the ABCs louder than everyone in class. I was so confident in my abilities to say the ABCs. I still couldn't speak good English, um, but it was it was a start. Finally, the next year in first grade, I heard Dr. Seuss for the first time, Mrs. Peterson, my first grade teacher, read it to our class, and I just fell in love. I fell in love with rhyming words and rhyming books. And I couldn't imagine how it was possible. It felt like magic to me that words could fit together. They could just lock together like that and sound so pretty. And that was the beginning of my love affair with poetry. And I think because I started off falling in love with poetry, there was a certain cadence that followed me into journalism. And a lot of my editors at different newspapers that I worked for often told me that my writing was like poetry, and I couldn't uh, express poetry. I couldn't actually write poetry for newspapers because I had to write news stories. But some of that, uh, some of those impulses, those poetic impulses, uh, definitely seeped into my journalistic writing. And I think that for the first time working on this memoir, what has been, to me, particularly fun 
and is, has made the, the hard days worth it, is to know that I get to play with words in this kind of writing that I didn't get to when I was doing journalistic writing that was so fact-based. Well, this kind of writing, the rules are a little bit different. You just have more leeway with how you construct a sentence. And, um, and so I'm taking it and running with it, and I've decided that I'm going to write uh, in the way that feels best to me, which my writing also connects back to my Cambodian culture. The Khmer language is so lyrical. It's, it's very sing-song-like. It's very poetic. Mm. I think it's difficult for anyone to think about writing a memoir when the people you're writing about are still alive and they're going to be reading it. So tell me a little bit about that part of this journey. I would have to say that writing about family members who are still alive and may read this and actually likely will and one already has is the most terrifying prospect of writing memoir. And I imagine that that other memoirists feel exactly the way that I do, especially when their stories go beyond them and involve other people in their families who become key characters in their books. The key character in my book is my mother. And I'm absolutely terrified for the day that she will either read the book or somebody will read the book for her. But I also have to understand, and I tell myself this, of who am I ultimately writing for? There are some very hard truths in my book. There are some very hard scenes of um, the way that my father's trauma manifested in our family was through physical violence. And some of those scenes in the book are very hard to read. They were exceptionally difficult to write. But those were truths that I couldn't avoid in the writing of this book because they shaped so much of the conflict between, the ultimate conflict between my mother and I. And so those are the kinds of things that I'm certain my parents are not going to be glad that I wrote about. I am glad that I did because ultimately when I think about who I write, I think about my 10 nieces and nephews. And I think that one day when they grow up and they read this book, if the takeaway that they get is that they can be more self-aware, they can be confident in who they are, they can believe that they can be anyone who they are and they will be loved and accepted for who they are, then that is my aim as a writer. I feel like every time I, I sit down to write anything personal, I'm writing for them. Now we'll hear a selection from Putsada's live reading. She's snug inside her rocking chair, a quilt covering her lap, and the remote control trapped inside the cage of her flaccid hand when the commercials flick away and her show comes on. Images of bikini-clad women mindlessly towing seashells and pasty white dudes with spears fashioned from snapped branches flash across the TV screen. She squints, shakes her head, scandalized by so much flesh. But she looks anyway, doesn't even wince. No matter how immodest the women and incompetent the men, nothing will stop Ma from watching Survivor. She barks at the screen, rooting for the player who snags a shark with his bare hands, cussing the one who can't crack a coconut. She issues advice, pounds rancor into the armrest. She laughs at the absurdity, at the spectacle of it all. And then the money, 
the $1 million grand prize, she can't help but salivate at the thought of so much cash. Put, sign me up for the show, Matt says to me. Her voice energized with conviction. I can win. She has said this going on 20 years now, since the first time we watched the U.S. premiere of Survivor in 2000. My mother stands barely five feet tall, walks with a limp because gout has inflamed her ankles, and she can't sleep without two tubes jammed in her nostrils as a CPAP machine pumps air into her 81-year-old lungs. She can't swim, balance on small beams, or stack blocks with hands tied behind her back using only her feet. She blames arthritis and old age. On the other hand, her instincts are sharper than the sticks the survivor contestants whittled into weapons, and she can make a meal out of almost anything, scavenged leaves and tubers, banana buds and fire ants. She can't read or speak much English, and her mind moves idly around math, but her brand of smart is the kind that can save you. I used to roll my eyes when Mott told me she could win on Survivor until I started hearing her stories of growing up in Cambodia, of how our family eventually escaped the war that tossed us onto American shores. When I asked her once to tell me about her life, Matt told me stories about her early years of marriage back when my father worked as a clerk for the Cambodian Navy. Back then, she had to strategize how to survive on Pa's meager government salary. He eventually moved up the ranks, a series of promotions propelling him to the accounting job he had when the war came. He was an important man, Matt said. We had a home pigs, chickens. People came to us to borrow rice and money. But in the beginning, newly wed, Matt hustled to feed her husband and herself, always in that order. She once slung a government-issued mosquito net across a crocodile-infested lagoon and slowly, hesitantly, spooled the fabric back in. She kept her knees bent, ready to run if a large, long mouth snapped at her at the end of the net, she spent the rest of the afternoon carefully plucking tiny, frantic fish from its weave. She viewed the jungles behind the barracks where she and Pa lived as her personal supermarket, scavenging for wild bananas, bamboo shoots, and cassava, and gathering kindling for her cook fire. If pressed, she could build a shelter with palm fronds, start a fire with stones, and catch rice paddy frogs with a five-foot pole she whacked against the fields to flush frogs from cover and steer them into her wading basket. I never saw her do any of these things in Corvallis, Oregon, where my parents and four siblings and I lived, mainly because she didn't need to. We had an electric stove, and Ma got her meat from the Roth's IGA supermarket down the street. Sometimes she and Pa plunged a borrowed net into the Columbia River, filling a gallon-sized bucket with smelt that my family ate for days and weeks afterward, pan-fried with salt and pepper, or braised in soy, brown sugar, and ginger sauce. She could stretch a dollar in Corvallis by buying about-to-expire beef and half-bruised fruit on discount, a thriftiness born out of need brought from Cambodia. I was five years old when I first asked Ma how our family got from Cambodia to America. She pretended not to hear me. She distracted me with fables and folk tales and clever animals who survived on the strength of their resourcefulness. 
like the rabbit who tricked a crocodile into giving it a ride across the river. Over the years, I kept asking Ma, how do we get here? Eventually, she let slip small details about a journey at sea with little food and water, about a child almost lost. When I finally heard the full story, 40 years after that first asking, I understood why she thought she could win on Survivor. For Ma, surviving was never a game. It was her reality. On April 17, 1975, the communist Khmer Rouge regime entered Cambodia's capital, Phnom Penh, and launched a war and genocide that would eventually claim an estimated two million lives in four brutal years. That day, my family boarded a Cambodian Navy vessel built for a crew of 30, with 300 of us crammed on board. The ship left shore with no destination in mind. After several days at sea, the ship dropped anchor at a deserted island. The women and children were ordered to disembark so the men could huddle, hammer out where to go. Nobody knew. Everyone agreed, keep going forward. Don't go back. Back meant death. Back in Cambodia, the communists had begun their wholesale human slaughter. Even though my family had escaped, escaping doesn't guarantee survival. It only tilts the odds a little bit extra in your favor. On the island, there was no food, no water, no notice of when the women and children would be allowed back on board the ship. There were only palm trees, a jungle thick with understory, and a beach now knotted with bodies, mothers and their children clumped like seaweed above the tide line. The men gave us a bag of rice and a bag of rock salt, Matt said, but the rice wasn't processed. Can you believe it? We had no way to get the husk off and cook it. Up and down the beach, Stomachs growled and mothers shushed their crying children who clutched at empty bellies. Mutt glanced at her own children, ages eight, five, three, and a baby, not quite one, huddled together for comfort. Marooned on an island far from home, Mutt was confronted with her worst nightmare. No food for her family. Hunger was a fact. A lady Mutt knew somehow managed to carry a bag of rice when she disembarked, and as the woman cooked food for her children, Matt watched and waited. When the family finished eating, Matt sheepishly approached, gulped down her pride, begged for a ration of rice. Please have mercy on us, Matt said. My children are so hungry. The woman looked left and then right, nudged supplies toward my mother. Take the rice, the pot, the spoon, Matt's friend whispered. Don't tell any of the others. I don't want to get mobbed. Matt built a fire with sticks my oldest sister, Sinero, collected from the edges of the jungle. She made a pot of baba, rice soup, which she spoon-fed to my siblings in slow rotation as they alternately chomped on nuggets of rock salt. The spoon always skipped her own mouth every time it was Matt's turn to take a bite. My family survived another day. Out at sea, we were nameless, numbered, and hungry. We were scared, and ultimately, we were unwanted. Our ship left the island and plied the waters off the Gulf of Thailand for three weeks, shunned from port to port by countries unwilling to grant us asylum. On the top deck, sunblast and sea spray assaulted my family. My parents rigged a roof to protect us from the sun by tying together two kramas, Cambodia's ubiquitous checkered scarves, and cinching one end to the ship's front rail 
and the other end to the section of a 50 millimeter caliber mounted machine gun. For most of the trip, my mother slumped against the metal pedestal of that machine gun, cradling a critically dehydrated 11-month-old baby in Hoserdong. The baby hadn't cried or moved in days. The only sign of life was a sticky diarrhea that stained Ma Surong. One day, the ship's captain crisscrossed the deck to assess the condition of his passengers. Arriving at my family's spot, he bent low, peered at the lifeless body. Your baby is dead, he insisted. Throw it overboard before it contaminates the others. My mother refused, pitched her body over her baby, clutched the bundle and begged the captain to keep her baby until the ship reached shore so she could bury her baby in the earth. We're Buddhist, Matt said, invoking their shared religion. The captain relented. When the ship reached the American naval base at Subic Bay in the Philippines, Matt rushed her baby onto land and into the hands of American military physicians. She fell into the deepest sleep on the sparkling white floor of the white clinic beneath her baby's white bed. In the morning when she woke and jiggled a finger in her baby's hand, the baby twitched. Matt sobbed, relief throbbing her ribs. Beneath her ribs, her baby was alive. That baby was me. These days when we watch Survivor, I think about what my mother endured, how she made it this far, how she outlasted the toughest odds. She still talks to the TV screen, bending a finger at the contestants who give up on a challenge too soon, who appear to lose hope. Get me on the show, put, she says. I can win, easy million. <laughs> I no longer roll my eyes when she says this. I listen and nod. And no, she can. She already has. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production produced by Alyssa Keene and Daniel Gunther at Jack Straw Cultural Center. Our recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, Tom Stiles, and Ayesha Ubiatilaka. Our theme music is by the Bird Tribe Orchestra, produced through the Jackstraw Artist Support Program. The 2019 curator of this program is Kathleen Flanagan, and the narrator for this podcast is Alyssa Keen. The Jackstraw Writers Program was inspired by an over-the-back fence conversation in 1996 between author Rebecca Brown and Jack Straw Executive Director Joan Rabinowitz. The program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. Special thanks go to Larry Lawrence for transcribing our writers' interviews. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. You can subscribe to this and other Jackstraw podcasts through your favorite podcast app. To hear more episodes and learn about our other programs, visit us at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.